Father, please now, would you help us to understand these words so that we see how they point us to Jesus and how, what, what, what difference they make in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mistakes were made. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry if anyone was offended. Those words sound familiar. They're just three examples of what is sometimes called a non-apology apology. It's how you make a show of apologising without actually doing so. Uh, because it seems that we struggle, don't we? We struggle with saying sorry and certainly with meaning it, maybe due to pride or a feeling of injustice or an inability or unwillingness to admit that we're ever wrong. But if merely saying sorry doesn't come naturally to us, how much harder is what Christians and the Bible call repentance? Repentance is one of those Bible words that we kind of chuck around uh, freely without always knowing what it means. Well, it, it means to do a U-turn, to change direction, to turn away from sin and turn back to God. It involves saying sorry and admitting wrong, which is, as we've said, is difficult enough. But it's more than just saying sorry. It is actually turning back to God to go his way instead of our way. It's what we do when we first turn back to God and we start following Jesus. But it's also what Christians are called to do daily in our lives. And when we meet together as well, we confess our sins, we're repenting, we're turning back to him. Because how you start in the Christian life is also how you go on. And these verses that we've just heard from, from chapter 2, verse 12, to, to verse 27 in Joel chapter 2, they are about repentance. They are about returning to the Lord, as Joel puts it, or God through Joel in, in verse 12. If you weren't with us last week, the background is that God's people are suffering a great disaster. A plague of locusts, destroying their food supply, disrupting their worship. And we heard Joel last week imploring the people to wake up to reality here and now, uh, but then to face up to the future. That there is a day of the Lord to come, which will be a greater cause for concern than whatever circumstances we're facing now, even in such a day of locusts. So whether it's locusts or COVID or any of the other effects of living as sinners in a fallen world, there is a day of the Lord to come. So he's made that point so far. Given what's coming then, what should we do? That is the question here. Return to the Lord is the reply. Return to the Lord, but wholeheartedly, Joel says, with fasting, weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Rend means to tear. So don't just tear your clothes, tear your heart. The Scottish minister and uh, author Sinclair Ferguson talks about a time when he quoted that verse 13, uh, rend your heart, not your garments. Uh, he quoted it in a book that he was writing. And he got the drafts back to check uh, just before they pressed print at the printers. And uh, he spotted a misprint because, you know, as we're all familiar with, they had auto-corrected rend to rent so it read rent your heart 
and not your garments. And he was glad to have spotted it because, as he explained, of course, to rent your heart means something completely different. You know, to, to rend means to tear, tear it up, but uh, he, he makes the point we naturally prefer to rent out our hearts to other things, to idols of wealth and pleasure and safety and security and created things rather than the creator. We rent out our hearts and we think, oh, it'll be fine. Just do it for a little while, rent it out. I'll get it back again. You know, I can give it back to God at the end. Everything will be fine. But for now, for now, I'm going to rent it out. Rent out my heart to to whatever idol, whatever thing that isn't God uh, we might be attracted to. But we don't realize these idols will become tenants who are impossible to get rid of. Or that they will provide an income that we come to rely on and we feel we can't do without. And they capture our hearts when we rent them out. But it doesn't say rent your heart. It says rend your heart. Give up the fight. Surrender. Don't try and keep part of your heart for anyone or anything else. It's all for him. Go all in. But just as we struggle simply with saying sorry... So we struggle, perhaps even more, if we're honest, with going all in on repentance, on giving our whole hearts to God and saying, I'm not the boss, you are. You know, we're happy to make a show of it, to tear our garments, as he says, but not to tear our hearts on the inside and turn back to God. And so what Joel then does in the rest of of the reading that we heard is to give us reasons to return. Reasons to come back to God in order to motivate us. So last week was a bit of sort of stick, kind of, there is a day of the Lord to come, you need to repent. This is perhaps more carrot now than stick. Reasons to return to the Lord, to repent, in order to overcome our reluctance. Here's the first one. His character, verses 12 to 14. His character. Who we think God is will massively affect our willingness to return to him. I think I've quoted this quote from Richard Dawkins before, um, but uh, Richard Dawkins is one of those people who who kind of um, doesn't beat around the bush when he's saying things uh, that he wants to say. And uh, what he says sums up, I think, you know, some people's fears and assumptions about God. So listen to what he says says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. If that is who you think God is, and God is saying, stop living life as the boss in your life and making your own rules and come back to me and go my way, if that is who you think God is, are you going to want to do that? To that kind of God that we've just heard Richard Dawkins and others like him describe. Well, contrast what Dawkins thinks and others with what the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the one same God, what he says about himself. So, look at the second half of verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and 
compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. I mentioned this on Wednesday briefly at the prayer meeting, if you were with us. But do you know these are the most quoted Old Testament words about God in the Old Testament? Those words, the second half of verse 13. Because, well, no, he, he is a God of justice and he will punish evil and wickedness. And we, we heard about some of that last time. You know, there will be a day of the Lord. Evil will be put right. Things will be sorted out. But here is what even the Old Testament itself wants to measure on and celebrate. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. Turn back to him and see what you find. Now, after that, verse 14 if you look, seems to introduce an element of uncertainty. Who knows? He may turn and relent. Well, the point seems to be not that, you know, we can't be sure what's going to happen. The point seems to be don't take God's forgiveness for granted. His point in these verses is that God is looking for wholehearted repentance, not superficial box ticking. Rend your heart, not just your garments. Be, go all in on repentance. It's like a, a husband who one day messes up and does something that upsets his wife. You know, this is entirely theor- theoretical, you understand. But he's contrite in heart and he says, it's my bad, what I did was wrong. And he goes and he buys her some flowers by way of apology and he writes a little note and she is moved by this expression of repentance and everything is okay again. But then what happens is the husband thinks, huh, flowers work. Right. And so he starts to think, well, I won't bother doing the washing up even though I said I would. I'll just get, give her flowers. In fact, I'll pre-order them. And then I've just kind of, kind of used them whenever I need them. Because flowers work. They get the job done. I can do what I like. But of course, they don't work when they're not the fruit of genuine contrite repentance. See, what is going on there is presuming on forgiveness. And it's the same with God, you see. The point is... Don't think it's your act of repentance that is going to earn your forgiveness from God, that's going to be the kind of payment for your uh, wrongdoing. The actual basis for his forgiveness is his character. So all you can do then is throw yourself on his mercy. You can't look to yourself and think, yeah, but I'm, I'm saying sorry in this particularly good way. I'm repenting in this way. No, just throw yourself on his mercy. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at the way that you're responding. Throw yourself on him. That's what he's saying when he says, who knows? Because you've just got to throw yourself on him. And that is what genuine repentance involves. Going all in, holding nothing back, recognizing that our only hope is God's mercy. The problem is we so easily assume that Dawkins is kind of right, maybe, or or partly right, you know, that God is a spoil sport, that turning back to him will make life difficult and less fun and less livable. And so we prefer instead to kind of dabble with sin and to rent our hearts out. Well, we heard the warning last time, the day of the Lord is coming be ready, but here is the one to whom we are called to return. 
And so then look at the second half of verse 14. He, he may leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord, for the Lord your God. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying this is not a God who is measuring our performance and waiting for us to fail because instead, in his grace, he provides the offerings that we need in order to worship him. In the old covenant, that was grain offerings and drink offerings. In the new covenant, he's provided the sacrifice that we need to worship him. He's given us Jesus. When I was a very young Christian, as a teenager, I can, I can remember being under the impression that somehow God was still measuring my performance and I needed to keep the rules. And if I didn't go to church every week, then he'd be angry. And, you know, because of that, because of that belief that I had about God, even though you know, I would call myself a Christian, I actually, I actually stopped going to church because that burden of thinking that if I don't keep this up, he's going to be angry with me, that was too much for me to bear. So I was just like, I can't do this. Impossible. But then I came to understand his grace and his compassion and his mercy, that this is who he is. And I found myself wanting to go and be with his people week by week, just because I'd understood who he is. Do you see the difference? So return to the Lord because of his character. Then Joel goes on, secondly, return to the Lord because of his commitment, verses 15 to 17. Blow the trumpet, gather the people, pray, and get the priests, verse 17, to say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Now, people like Richard Dawkins, as we heard, they criticise the God of the Bible as being self-centred, you know, Worship me, love me, glorify me, it's all about me. And of course, those words sound ugly and twisted on the lips of human beings. But when it comes to God, there is no higher good than worshipping him. But even so, we can say more than that, because what does God want to be known for? We heard uh, the second reading from Ephesians chapter 1. In, in, in chapter 2, we, um, Paul goes on in that, in that book in Ephesians to say that God saved those who were dead in their sins, deserving God's wrath because of his love, in order that in the coming ages he might declare the incomparable riches of his grace. And what's that, what's that saying is that he, he saved his people in order that he might show the universe his wonderful grace that he might get, in one sense, to show off, that he might be able to, to, to display uh, among you know, the angels looking on and everyone watching, look at my plan. Look at how great it is. Look at how my, great my love is for those who don't deserve it, for his commitment to a sinful, rebellious people. But here's the thing, you see. There is nothing self-centred or selfish about God desiring to be known as the one who saves sinners who don't deserve it. Could you call that selfish? No. And there's nothing self-centered or selfish even about God desiring to be worshipped as that God who saves sinners. 
So Joel says, pray to God. Don't let your people be a byword, which means a kind of poignant, poignant example of a people forgotten by their gods. Don't let the nation say, look at them, where is their God? Do you see what he's doing? He's appealing to God's reputation. Because God is a God who is committed to loving his people. So think of a spouse who has forgiven the unfaithfulness of their lover over and over again. You know, you might say, well, that's, that's extraordinary. That's more than I could do. That's more than that person deserved. They're an amazing person to be able to do that. But you can never say, that's selfish. That's just for his or her own glory that he or she is forgiving that person over and over and over again. You can't say that, can you? Because it's not a selfish thing that they're doing. It's the opposite of it. It makes us marvel, but it's costly. And it's like that a million times more so with God. He is committed to his people and he's determined to have that reputation in his world and in his universe and beyond the universe that he is the one who saves his people, who is committed to his people no matter what, that he won't let them become an object of scorn in the world. He won't have people going around and say, oh, did you hear about what the God of the Bible did to that people? He abandoned them. No, he won't be known as that God. He is committed. And so the command comes, return quickly, urgently to this God. Do you see that in verse 16? Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Cancel the honeymoon, that means in order to come back to this God. It is that urgent, it is that worthwhile to find this kind of committed, wholehearted love. Return to him because of his character, his commitment, and then, thirdly, because of his response. Verse 18 is the uh, turning point in Joel. It's been God's speech through Joel all the way up to this point, one long speech, the day of the locust is here, the day of the Lord is coming, so return to me. But now we switch to narrative. The story moves on. We, we, we presume they did move, uh, turn back to the Lord. And now, verse 18, the Lord was uh, jealous for his land and he took pity on his people. But what we can do now is we can continue to learn from this response that we now see in verses 18 to 27. We learn from his response as a further motivation to us today to keep returning to the Lord. So what can we see then? Well, we see in verses 18 to 20, we see the undeserving are jealously loved. God has a general love for all human beings that he's made, but he has a particular love for his people, which is a jealous love. Now, we often think of jealousy as a bad thing, don't we? We think, oh, you know, you ought to be jealous, and it often is a bad thing. But here it means the jealous, protective love between lovers or between a parent and a child. You know, think Mama Bear or something like that. And he says he's jealous for his people, verse 18, and then he says, verse 20, he's going to protect them. I will drive away the northerner. Now, I hope there aren't any... Uh, or Northerners are going to be upset by this, or Scots even. Um, that's not what it's about. This is God jealously protecting his people from harm in the terms in which they were experiencing it back then. If we're trusting in Jesus, God has more than a general affection towards us. 
You know, think of a, th- think of a school. Think of, think of a really good head teacher in a school. You know, you get these head teachers and they know, they, 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 they kind of know everybody in the school. They kind of know, and they, they might even know their names. But at the same time, you kind of know they can never really know everybody in that school really, really well. Or think of the CEO of a big company. You know, they know the key people, and they, but they're not going to be able to concern themselves with the, uh, you know, with, with the ins and outs of everybody in the organisation. Well, God is way more than that. He knows his people and he loves his people, each on that individual level. So we sang, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23 earlier. Think what King David is saying. He's saying, there are, there are billions of people in the world, the Lord is my shepherd. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And billions of others too, but for me. Do you see? We're not just one in the crowd if we are trusting in Jesus. Easily lost, easily missed. No, we are jealously loved and protected. The undeserving are jealously loved. And then verses 21 to 24 the sorrowful are made glad. Last time we heard of how God's judgment would involve the undoing of creation. Now creation is remade. Abundant showers of rain cause the threshing floors to be filled with grain, with vats overflowing with new wine. There's a sense that as things are put right between us and God, so the whole of creation is put right. Many today are concerned with creation care, with you know, saving the planet or however you want to look at it. Well, Joel is saying it begins with being right with God. And so rejoice, be glad because of what is to come. You know, you think that the future of the world, we're used to being told all the time, aren't we? The future of the world is doom. The future of the world is gloom. You know, whether we're talking politics or pandemics or global warming. We just have prophecies of doom all the time. Well, Joel is showing us the future, the far future. I'm not saying that we don't need to listen to the, to the other things, but we need to know there is a day of the Lord to come. There is a day of judgment to come. That is the end of history. And beyond that, there is a world remade to enjoy in perfect relationship with God as he dwells with his people, which involves the whole of creation that God loves being remade. The undeserving are jealously loved. The sorrowful are made glad. And then, in those final verses, the empty are filled. So verse 25, just listen to this wonderful promise. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust the other locusts and the locusts swarm, my great army that I sent among you. Do you see what he's saying? You know, when the locusts come, they leave nothing behind. And, and at the beginning of the book, we began with that description of the locusts, with these different, you know, different kinds of locusts, and they come wave after wave. And the first wave, you think they've taken everything. But no, there's a tiny little bit left, and the next wave come and take that. And you think, oh, there's nothing left now, but then there's another wave, and they come and take that. And you think, oh, there's just nothing here now at all. And it's here, do you see, the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, the locust swarm, the whole lot. I will repay you 
for the years the locusts have eaten. So when we think there's nothing left behind, when we think all that's left behind is scars and pain and suffering and fear for the future, we think you know, there's no resources here, there's nothing, I can't, can't do anything, I'm completely broken, can't give anything, do anything. There's no hope. What's the point? Give up. And maybe, you know, maybe COVID has made us feel like that, or we know it's making people feel like that in the world around us. Maybe life in some other way, as we live in the fallen world where things do not go in the way that seems like they ought to go, in whatever way that is. We think, oh, it's left me broken and consumed. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. You may be hungry now. You may fear that you will never eat again. You're thinking it's impossible. I'm never going to find food again. There's no food anywhere. You will be full. The thing about suffering is not only is it painful and difficult to deal with, it it can seem so utterly pointless. Whether we're talking depression or bereavement or fears and anxieties or the pain of illness and everything else in between, you know, we, we, we mourn not just the pain and the suffering that that involves directly, but we also mourn then the wasted time and the wasted years and we just think, what was the point of that? I will repay you, he says, for the years the locusts have eaten. When we experience unfulfilled longings and disappointments and we think that we've missed out and life has not gone according to plan in some way, I will repay you. Now, we need to be careful to understand what this means. It's not that God owes us somehow, that we put him in our, in our debt by the suffering that we've endured. It's not that he owes us, but that he graciously promises that the locusts and the scars and the pains that we experience now, they will not define us and they will not follow us forever. But again, for the Christian today, we want to know, well, okay, what does that mean? When is this talking about? When will this promise be fulfilled? You know, should I expect a a perfect, happy life now if I trust in Jesus? Because the point is, I'm not experiencing that, we might say. Well, we need to understand, when the prophets like Joel looked forward, they saw the future as one event. A day of the Lord to come, a promise of a new future after that. And it's often explained like this, and I think it's quite helpful. It's like a row of candles. You think of candles kind of lined up in a row. If you view them side on, you can see each individual candle. But if you stand at one end and look down the line of the candles, they kind of line up and all you can see is a single flame. And it's as if um, Joel is kind of standing at the end, looking down that line of candles, and all he can see is the single flame ahead. But that means that some of what Joel is talking about has happened, but some is still 
to come. But with that as well, we then need to understand, as we saw last week, that, for example, as he looks forward to the day of the Lord, well, we saw last time that, you know, that there is still a day of the Lord to come. There is a final day of judgment that the New Testament points out, you know, spells out to us that will come. But there is an important sense in which the day of the Lord has already come. There has been a day of darkness, of clouds and judgment when Jesus died on the cross. The end of history has in one sense happened in the middle of history. So that if we trust in him, we know the verdict of that future day of judgment has been uh, done already. And in the same way then that the day of the Lord has in one sense already happened in Jesus, so also, and this is the key thing to understand here as we think about this question, you know, what does it mean for God to repay us for the years of locusts of Eton? In the same way, in Jesus, even now, we get to experience the beginnings of these blessings that he is talking about. Because Jesus has stepped into history to bring the day of the Lord into history. And so we're in this kind of now and not yet experience of in one sense still living with the the, the bitterness and the difficulty of sin in our lives and in the world around us and yet also knowing the blessings that come that were spelt out in um, in Ephesians chapter 1 as we heard in the in the second reading these blessings they're still hidden in one sense they're not yet physical within our experience we we, we can't touch the new heavens and the new earth yet but that doesn't mean that it's just misery now and and you know happiness later when you die or when Jesus returns Paul says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ And so even in our suffering now, even in the day of the locusts, we get a taste of glory to come as we trust in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means knowing him personally as we hear from him in his word, as we pray to him, as we enjoy him together as his people. It means knowing we are loved unconditionally and accepted, even though we don't deserve it. And even when we continue to sin and mess up, it means knowing even in the midst of suffering and pain that this is not the end. It won't always be like this. That is how God begins to repay the years that the locusts have eaten, that the the locusts may even be continuing to eat right now. And yet we know Jesus in the midst of it. And so we begin what will one day be seen in all of its glory and fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. But Joel is saying it won't always be like this. God is near to us. And that is where he ends in in, in verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel. In other words, that I am near to my people. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And so he calls, return to me, return to me. We've seen the reasons. Let's come back to him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth, ten thousandth time. 
He is slow to anger and compassionate. He is committed to his people. He loves his people jealously. He will make the sorrowful glad. He will fill those who are empty as we come to him through Jesus. So let's do that. Let me pray now. Father God, we praise you for your character, for who you are, that you are abounding in love and faithfulness, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. We praise you, Father, that you are committed to us, your people. We don't deserve it, and yet that is how you are towards us. We praise you for your extraordinary, undeserved, jealous love that makes us glad, even in the midst of suffering, even while the locusts may even continue to chomp away. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that in Christ you have repaid us for the years that the locusts have eaten. And so in him, we come to you and praise you for the fullness that we find in him. May we know that more and more in our lives now and may we look forward to that in full in eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.